Open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we will be continuing our look at the Ten Commandments this morning, and specifically honing in on commandment number 3. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we will read from verse 6 to verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. <laughs> it's a competition now. <laughs> Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So you see quite clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that the Lord commanded his people Israel through his servant Moses these words. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The question you might ask as you hear that is why? Why is the name of the Lord to be esteemed so highly and treated with such gravity and such weightiness and such importance? Well, to understand this a little better, let's explore the name. And we begin to explore the name by going back to the moment that the Lord revealed that name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. This man, Moses, had been keeping his father-in-law Jethro's flocks near Mount Horeb decades before he would lead the people of Israel out from their enslavement in Egypt. And on one occasion, as Moses was tending the flocks, he looked out and he saw a bush that was on fire. Now, this isn't an unusual event in a dry desert to see something catch on fire. In such a climate, things do quite regularly catch on fire. But because the burning bush wasn't being consumed or incinerated by that fire, it caused Moses to turn aside and investigate what was going on. And as he approached this bush on fire, something amazing happened. A voice called to him out from that bush, saying to him in Exodus 3, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he, that's the Lord, speaking out from the bush, said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So you see here, the Lord identified himself to Moses as the same God who called and led Abraham centuries earlier. The same God who, who kept his covenant going through Isaac and through Jacob. The God they knew as El Shaddai, the all-powerful and sovereign one. The God that was speaking to Moses out from this bush was the same God that Moses' father Amram worshipped also. This is the same God who made promises to the patriarchs and to their descendants. And now this God has come down to make good on the promises that he made to his people. And when Moses heard all of these words, he hid his face. And Moses asked the Lord this question. Everybody's checking their phones. Whose phone? <laughs> Moses asked the Lord in Exodus 3.13, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? In other words... What is your name? You see, in our time and place, in our cultural climate, names don't mean a ton. Names are generally identity markers. It's how we distinguish one person from another. It's how we know that William is not Steve, and Steve is not Joe, and Joe is not Bob. And in our day, we like to choose names for our children, maybe that are trendy, or maybe we like to swing the opposite way and choose a name that nobody anywhere has because that's cool. My sister used to tell me of a friend of hers who named her child Absidy. Sounds like a nice name, but do you know how to spell that name? A-B-C-D-E. Exactly. That's what I thought when she told me. She thought it was cool. She thought it was different. The name didn't mean anything other than it's the first five letters of the alphabet. But in the days of Moses, names weren't picked out of a hat because they sounded cool. They didn't go and find a, a, a great name, baby name book and choose a name out of there that they thought was nice, pleasant to the ears. They didn't choose names based on the cool, coolness factor. I mean, if you look at some of the names that we read in the uh, genealogies of Scripture, you probably would see that people, for example, in Ezra 2, weren't in a hurry to name their children things like Magbish. But all of these names were carefully chosen by the parents in order to tell you something about that child. Whether it was something about the history of their family, something about their birth, something about the parental expectations for that child, a name actually told you something about the person. 
And so when, the Lord, when Moses asks the Lord, what is your name? He's asking to know more about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He wants to know more about who the God his father Amram worshipped is. And when Moses asked that question, God graciously revealed his name to him at the burning bush. In Exodus 3.14, our God said this, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the Lord's name that he revealed here is I am. That's very important. What does it mean? What does it speak to? What does this name tell us about the God who is to be remembered by this name forever? Throughout all generations. Because if this is the name that the Lord has given us, it is of primary importance for all of us who claim to serve this God to know what this name indicates, right? So I'm going to give you a number of things here. What does this name reveal about the Lord? First, I am who I am speaks to the Lord's being a self-defining God. Meaning, He is the one who reveals who He is. He is the one who tells us what He is like. He tells us what He expects from everyone who would serve Him. He acts and He does whatever He wills and refers only to Himself as a counsel of his will, because he needs and needs no counsel from anyone or anything that he has created. The Apostle Paul, when describing the mystery of the future, the mystery of Israel's hardening in Romans chapter 11, he makes this very point as he's explaining what the Lord is going to do in the future with regard to Israel. The Lord, says Paul, didn't consult with anyone other than his own triune self to make this decree and ordination. When he established the plan, it was the Lord who made the plan, and that's it. And so for this reason, Paul ends the explanation in Romans chapter 11 with these words. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? The implied answer to both of those is no one. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. This speaks to many of many professing Christians throughout history and up into our own day who think it is appropriate to try defining the Lord through the lens of our own cultural situation. If we don't like a certain thing, if we don't like a certain principle in Scripture, we don't like a certain section of God's Word, be it the extermination of the inhabitants of Canaan, for example, or be it the Lord's sovereign predestination of a people to save in Christ before the foundation of the world, then they like to try, some like to try to define the Lord through that lens or through that perspective, rather than rejoicing in the Lord's revelation of himself to us in Scripture. You see, the Lord is not defined by me. The Lord is not defined by you. 
The Lord is not defined by anything or anyone outside of himself. The Lord is who he is, and he has revealed who he is to us in the scriptures. And so the Lord revealing this name, I am who I am, removes from us any response to him other than all praise to your name. Second, I am who I am. Now, depending on your Bible translation, you might have an alternative phrase there, or you might look down at your footnote and see an an alternative phrase in the footnote. Footnote might say something like, I have been who I have been, or I will be who I will be, or I have been who I am, I will be who I am. There is no time marker here to this name. God has always been who he is right now. God will always be who he is right now. Nothing external forces his hand or changes him in any way. His character and his perfection move him to act. When the Lord makes a promise, his unchanging perfection moves him to deliver on that promise as stated. And nothing can alter it or thwart it. The Lord has been and always will be unchangeably perfect. Third, I am who I am speaks to the Lord's being completely active in all situations and all circumstances. See, the Lord, the reformers used to speak this very clearly, the Lord is never passive. The Lord doesn't just stand back and allow things to happen and watch, kind of saying, oh, I didn't know that was going to, oh, look at that, oh, that's interesting. Nothing in creation happens or occurs outside of God's active decree and ordination. Nothing in creation ever catches God off guard. Why? Because he has already ordained the end from the beginning. Fourth, I am who I am reveals to us the Lord's independence. The Lord is not at our disposal. We are at his disposal. And while he does indeed gloriously, wonderfully, and graciously listen to and hear our prayers, while our God is indeed very much involved in and with our lives, God is the one who governs all things to his good ends, and nothing and no one controls him. The Lord will later reveal to Moses, for example, in Exodus 33, 19, I will be gracious... To whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, the Lord's decrees and the Lord's decisions are His. His acts are His. His movements are His. His will is His. And He exercises His will as freely as He chooses to in His perfect wisdom. Fifth, I am who I am indicates or reveals to us that the Lord is perfectly sufficient and inexhaustible in himself. He is endless abundance. He is infinite and eternal. He is in need of nothing outside of his triune self. And listen, this is important. There is no possibility in the Lord for him to, for him to become anything other than who he is, who he's always been. There is no untapped potential in the Lord. He is who he is. He is who he has been. He is who he will be. 
And for this reason, both Israel and you and I here this morning, we can trust him completely. And this is why scripture uses these magnificent phrases to refer to him. Things like, the Lord our God is a rock and a fortress. Why choose terms like that? Because it reveals the unchangeable nature of God. I love King Solomon in Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. How can Solomon make such a clear statement like that? The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and if a righteous man runs into it, it's not perhaps he's safe, maybe he'll be safe. It is he is safe. The name of the Lord, I am, reveals and images to us the Lord as impenetrable and unchanging. And this is the very reality that the Apostle James, or that James, rejoices over in his letter when he writes in James 1.17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is designed to elicit from us great worship and great praise to the name of the Lord. It is a blessing for us to know in a world that is always changing, always turbulent, always in revolution, always moving from one thought to the next or one value to the next, that the Lord, our rock, our fortress, our strong tower is he who is and he who will always be who he is. Sixth, I am who I am. Meaning, I am he who causes all things to exist. I created the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars. I created every green tree, every blade of grass, every speck of dirt. I created every person, every angel. It is me, the I am, the great I am, that establishes covenants and makes promises. It is the Lord who does all of these things. As he will say to his people through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. I am speaks to God being the creator, the sustainer, the Lord and the sovereign. I am speaks to him being the one who works out his goals and his aims and his purposes in creation according to his perfect Good, wise will. Seventh, I am who I am speaks to God's existence or existing outside of the created order. You see, the Lord is not a part of creation, He didn't arise from within creation. He is eternally existent with no beginning, no middle, no end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the eternally living God. Eighth, and we could go on. I'll stop at eight. I am who I am. The revelation of this name carries with it a warning. I am God. I remain God. I will always be God. And every tongue will eventually confess my lordship. There is coming a day when every single knee will bow. And for all of these reasons and more, the name of the Lord is to be treated with honor and with dignity. 
to treat the name of the Lord with irreverence or thoughtlessness and hypocrisy is to blaspheme and to profane that name. A very grievous and awful sin, as we note in the third commandment. Think about this for a second. That we know the name of God, that we know the identity of the great I Am who spoke to Moses out from the burning bush, the very God who took on flesh and made his dwelling among us in the person of Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. To know His name is both a blessing and a solemn, serious responsibility. Throughout Scripture, the Lord will add different, vari different variations to that name that He revealed. The name of the Lord is like a diamond. The old rabbis used to say the name of the Lord is like a diamond that every single time you turn it, you get a, a, a little bit of a different light or you see things from a different perspective. As you can see, we're trying to just show you how great the name of God is this morning. And so here are a few of the diamond turns that you see in Scripture with regard to the name of the Lord. You see the Lord referred to in Genesis 17, verse 1, as God Almighty. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. This name reveals the God who is completely powerful over all things. It's El Shaddai. It's the sovereign, powerful one. It speaks to him being the God who accomplishes the impossible, like promising a son to the aged Abraham and his barren wife Sarah. It speaks to a God who consistently performs powerful deeds, mighty deeds, deeds that only He, that only God Almighty could do. Parting the Red Sea, saving sinners from the just and righteous wrath of God, in Christ. See, these things, as Jesus will say in Matthew 19, these things with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Scripture also refers to the Lord as Lord and Master. This name is usually stated as Lord God. Now, when you are reading your Bibles, take note of the different ways God or Lord God or Lord, how they're all how they all um, are used or, or written down, the letters and the, the caps and the italicizations and everything that are used. Because when you read the Bible, if you see Lord in small letters and then God in all caps, Lord God, that is Lord and Master. This name is used to describe God 400 times, 400 times in the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy 3.24, you just flip back a little bit, you see there Moses praying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? The name, this name reveals that our God is Lord and master over all people. He's not simply some being out there to whom we must give a nod of acknowledgement as we just get along in our own lives. Nor is he, no, he is the God over our lives. He is the one to whom we submit, the one we obey, the one around whom we organize our entire life. Third, 
We read, the Lord our banner, Yahweh our banner. This name is only used once in the Old Testament, but boy, is it beautiful. Boy, is it comforting. After the Lord led Israel in their defeat of the Amalekites, you see Joshua leading the armies of Israel. And Moses, if you recall, standing on the top of a hill with the staff of God in his hand. The same staff that turned into a snake when he threw it on the ground. And as Moses' hands were held up high, the armies of the Israelites prevailed. And when his arms grew weary and they came down, the Amalekites would prevail in the battle. And so the battle kept going back and forth based on where Moses' arms were in the, at the moment. So Aaron and Hur made Moses sit down and they held up his arms. And Joshua, Exodus 17:3, overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And so Moses built a memorial there in that moment, at that place, in Exodus chapter 17, 15, and he called it, the Lord is my banner. The banner is the standard that people rally to in battle. The banner is the focal point behind which all of the armies line up. The banner is what the armies follow into battle. The Lord is our banner, meaning he is the one who leads us into the battles. Not only is he the one who leads us into the battles, he's the one who fights for us and wins those battles. The Lord is our shepherd. This name is used a few times, the most well-known being Psalm 23. You know it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And again in Psalm 80 verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Now what is a shepherd? What does a shepherd do? A shepherd feeds and provides for and cares for and protects the sheep. The shepherd is a protective companion of the sheep. And throughout scripture, guess what? We are called God's sheep. And we, like sheep, are prone to wander. We, like sheep, are helpless against the wolves and the predators that seek to devour us. And as a result, we require the Lord, our shepherd. A shepherd of great power and great commitment. And there is only one shepherd who can make us to lie down in green pastures, isn't there? And he is most clearly revealed to us as our shepherd in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the good shepherd who went so far as to lay down his life for the sheep, as he declared in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is no hireling. He's no $10 an hour security guard who runs at the first sign of trouble. No, he is our good shepherd, and he will die to ensure we are saved. The scriptures also call our God, they name him the Lord who heals. As Israel set out for the promised land after their deliverance by the Lord from enslavement in Egypt, he said to them in Exodus 15, 23, I am the Lord, your healer. I am am Yahweh, your healer. Meaning God is the one who heals and binds up the wounds of his people. God is the one who alleviates the distresses and the pains of his people in accordance with his goodwill. And this is made especially clear again in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the great physician, 
who effectively banished sickness from Israel during his life by healing the sick and the infirm and the blind. He even raised the dead. And ultimately, he heals the sickness in our souls by bringing all who believe in his name to salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. The Lord also is described by the Lord is peace. Gideon was raised up by the Lord to deliver the Israelites from oppression in the oppression of the Midianites. He was raised up in Israel to deliver the Israelites from oppression by the Midianites, and he encountered an angel of the Lord. And he was overwhelmed with terror by this encounter. Gideon cried out in Judges 6:22, "Alas, O Lord God!" Remember that phrase, "O Lord God?" We just Talked about it. Oh Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face and believing that he was about to die. As a result, the Lord comforted Gideon and said in 623, Peace to you, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And Gideon, in response, built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. Gideon experienced the peace of God. And in even fuller measure, we who come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we know him as our peace. So for all who trust in Christ, God has established a relationship of peace between himself and you. As we see in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, at one time there was, if you believe in Jesus now, at one time there was, a rela- there was enmity in your relationship between God. But the God who is peace took it upon himself to create that peace between him and us. And not only that, but he leaves his peace with us. He gives us a peace that passes understanding. He gives us this unexplainable peace. Jesus himself said it in John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And therefore, as a result, the Apostle Paul could write to the Colossian church saying this in chapter 3 verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. A couple more. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is another description of the the name of God. And this name is used throughout the Old Testament 300 times. The Lord of hosts. This name indicates the sovereignty of God over every army, whether it is a spiritual army or an earthly one. We read in Exodus 15, 3, that the Lord is indeed a man of war, a mighty warrior who fights for and protects his children. And all the armies of the earth, all the armies everywhere are at his disposal. And he is the God who dispatches both heavenly armies and earthly armies to accomplish his will on the earth. He is the God who, for example, sent his angel armies to encamp around the prophet Elisha when the armies of Syria were angry because Elisha kept constantly going to the king of Israel and and telling him what the plans of Syria were by prophetic revelation. And the Syrian armies wanted to eliminate this prophet once and for all because he kept getting in the way of their attack plans. 
And Elisha's servant, sitting beside Elisha, watched the Syrian army approach, all of their chariots, all of their militiamen, all of their horses, and he was terrified. He flew into a panic, and he looked at Elisha, and he said in 2 Kings 6, My master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God protects his people with the hosts of heaven, and when he deems it right with the armies of the earth as well, he is the Lord of hosts. One more. We could go on and on and on and on. He is the Lord who sees. As Sarah dealt harshly with her maidservant Hagar out of jealousy, Hagar ran away. And the Lord found Hagar and revealed to her his compassionate oversight. He saw her distress. He saw her difficulty and revealed to her that he is the God who sees all. And God made wonderful promises to this Hagar and tenderly watched over both her and the child that she would bear. And after revealing all of this to Hagar as she wept in the wilderness, she said in Genesis 16, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The oversight of God for Hagar, and by extension, the oversight of God on all who call upon his name, is not the detached stare of someone who's just walking by. The detached stare of some stranger who doesn't care about you at all. The eyes of the Lord look on his people with a tender affection. The eyes of the Lord are the watch of a loving, caring God. It is like, albeit in far greater measure, a loving parent who lovingly watches over his children with protective intent. That's just a small sampling of the glory of God's name. What a wonderful name it is, right? What an amazing name. There are so many more disclosures of the greatness of the divine name of the Lord. And with each one, we see another layer of his greatness, of his glorious, the glorious wonder of his person. And this name requires a response from every single last person on earth. This name demands repentance and faith. This name demands belief and trust in Christ. And this name should lead to a life of obedience and glorification of the Lord and a dedication to bringing others in to do the same. May it never be, my fellow brothers and sisters, may it never be that our response to the name of the Lord is one that profanes that name, the very name that Christ told us we ought to hallow. Our response to the name of the Lord is of utmost importance, seeing that his name speaks to his person and reveals to us so much about who he is. His name is holy. His name speaks to his perfections, speaks to his person, speaks to his character, speaks to his attributes. 
And so for this reason, anytime anyone takes the name of the Lord, this is a serious act. His is a name to be treasured, a name to be honored, a name to be revered and proclaimed, both in righteous words and in righteous life. When Israel was given this command, they themselves had been taken out from the nation of Egypt by the Lord to be bearers of his name to the nations, to take on his name for the sake of the nations. Israel was to be the people of the Lord. They were to be his representatives, his ambassadors, his royal nation, his kingdom of priests. They were the ones who, bearing his name, were to display to the world the joys and the blessings of living in submission to his commandments. And so they had taken the name of the Lord in that sense. Therefore, They must actually live in a way that exemplifies the goodness and wonder and glory of that name. So when we get to the third commandment, this is what we're talking about. If you recall, just to go back a second, the first commandment for Israel was to worship the living God exclusively. The second commandment for Israel was like it, avoid the usage of any and all idols, whether they are the idols that you create of other gods or any images of the Lord himself. And as we come to the third commandment, here we read it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So let's, let's break that down a little bit. You shall not take. You shall not take. Take here means to use, to take up in the sense of carry it or bear it. So hear the command using those uh, meanings. First, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Second, you shall not take up, carry, or bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. The first denotes the way we speak or use the name of God. The second notes those who bear the name of the Lord as one of his people, but do so falsely and profane his name by their life. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God. As we've noted already, the name of the Lord represents his person, his perfections, his attributes, and his character. This is not just any old name that is being spoken of here in this command. It is the name. It is I am, it is Yahweh the Lord, and to speak or to use this name in any capacity is a weighty act, not something to be done flippantly or with levity. To bear the name, to claim him as your Lord, is also a very serious act. Because when you profess to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you do that, you bear his name, you take his name. You become his representative. You become his ambassador. You become one who portrays him to everyone you come in contact with, whether at work or at home with your friends, on your hockey team, wherever it is. So to take his name and then profane it with your life is one of, if not the most blasphemous and horrific thing that any one of us can do. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That phrase there, vain, means Something without value. 
something worthless, something inconsequential. So, you shall not use, carry, bear, or lift up the name of the Lord as though that name were something worthless, valueless, or inconsequential. And why? Because, as verse 11 says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The Lord will not leave unpunished those who use the name of the Lord in a profane manner. The Lord will not leave unpunished those who bear his name but profane it by a false and disobedient life. In Israel, we are shown the penalty for someone cursing or taking the name of the Lord in vain. And let me tell you, it is serious. Here's an example. Leviticus 24. There was a fight that broke out between a couple of men. And one of them, according to Leviticus 24.10, blasphemed the name and cursed. And they brought the man who blasphemed the name to Moses. And Leviticus 24.12 says, They put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Did you see the penalty for profaning, cursing, and blaspheming the name of the Lord in ancient Israel? Death by stoning. That should signal to us the consequence and the magnitude of the sin of taking and using the name of the Lord in vain. It is for this reason that our Lord Jesus Christ, when his disciples asked him, teach us how to pray, opened up his model prayer by saying what? Matthew 6 verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word hallow, it's one of those older words that we bring out every so often, right? I heard it used when referring to venerable, highly respected people or places. You see these hallowed halls, that hallowed ground, that hallowed institution. The word means to highly honor, venerate, respect. It also carries the meaning of setting something apart as holy. Setting apart this name from every other name. Setting apart this name as being above every other name. While the ESV will choose to retain the word hallowed, it's a good translation, other translations will help us by bringing out the sense a little more clearly. Like the HCSB, for example, will say, your name be honored as holy. In one sense, this is a warning to us who claim to follow him. We are the representatives of his name on earth. And so we are called to be those who hallow his name. We are called to be the people whose speech hallows his, the glories of his name, never speaking lightly of him and never living in a way that brings profane, that profanes his name or brings disrepute upon that name into the world that we live in. And listen, we dishonor the name of God when we claim to belong to him and live contrary to his word, will, and command. The Lord declared as much to Israel in Leviticus 22. 
There we read this. You shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. We hallow his name as we live in accordance with his will, as we live obediently to his commands, letting our light shine before men so that they might see them and do what? Give glory to our Father who is in heaven. The hallowing of his name also means that we ascribe to the Lord all glory and honor, that we exalt his perfection, we lift high his character, we praise him for all of his works in creation, we extol him for his faultless and excellent attributes. We pray that the name of God may be glorified and regarded as sacred throughout all the world, that all might see and give the Lord the honor that is due his name. The goal in our lives is to see the name of the Lord honored. We would love to see what the David says in Psalm 34, 3. We'd love to join in this chorus saying, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So, how can we keep from taking the name of the Lord our God in vain and instead hallow, magnify, and exalt his name together? We're going to look at this under two headings for the time we have left. The first is, what are we doing with his name? And the second is, what are we doing in his name? What are we doing with his name? What are we doing in his name? First, what do we do with the name of the Lord? Now, I assume that all of us would agree that using the Lord's name as a curse word or a swear word is blasphemy, that it's a hideous and loathsome sin, and that everyone who professes Christ must stay as far away from doing that as possible. We should stay away from cursing and swearing in general, and we should always be asking ourselves this question, what do my words tell those around me about the God I profess to love and serve? What do my words tell those around me about the God that I profess to serve, love, and represent? And you can also ask yourself this, what do my words tell me about my heart towards the Lord? Because our Lord Jesus Christ did say in Matthew 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. The words we speak display and declare to everyone around you what is in your heart. You want to know what's in your heart? Think about what you speak about most. What is it that you talk about most? How do you use your words? If you are a person who speaks lightly, irreverently about the Lord, then guess what? Your heart, at the center of your person, you consider the Lord lightly, irreverently, and unworthy of honor and reverence. If you are one who uses the name of the Lord as a curse word, as a swear word, then you have revealed that your heart holds blasphemous thoughts about the Lord. And now someone might say, well, you know, when I get around this group of people, I just can't help myself. It just kind of flies out. Stop that. I've heard that before. It's not a convincing argument. You can control your speech. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you and just stop. 
And not only that, but just, I'm not going to put this on you. This is just something that I was thinking about. But have you ever noticed how many of our exclamations and our filler words, while not being the name of the Lord, specifically revolve around our, our God? The oh my gods and the goodness gracious is and the good heavens is and the oh my Lord and the G's and the jeepers and the darns and the holy cows and all of that. You ever notice how it's always something to do with the Lord? Why is that? Why is our speech so littered with glib, thoughtless, shallow phrases that find their root in something of our wonderful God that we just speak so lightly and irreverently? Speaking casually about the person of God, the perfections of God, the attributes of God, even in a less direct, more adjacent manner, still speaks to a disrespectful heart disposition. Now, taking the Lord's name in vain has to do with cursing like that, but it also has to do with misrepresenting Him by the words we speak. When a person distorts God's revelation of Himself in His word, this too is taking the name of God in vain. When a false prophet will arise up and say, you know, God told me, and then proceeds to speak some lie or heresy, when someone, in order to boost their own credibility or their own bank account or their own authority or their own reputation or their own reach, goes out and preaches the word of God and represents him to the people but speaks falsehood, that is taking the name of the Lord's name in vain. Anytime someone in the name of the Lord approves of or permits or promotes or justifies sin, that's a taking of the Lord's name in vain. Whenever some guy or girl gets up and tries to say the word of God approves of women being elders and pastors in a church, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. Every time someone contravenes scripture with regard to marriage and sexuality and gender, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. These and so many other efforts to distort the word of God are taking his name in vain. What do your words tell the people around you about the God that you serve? Do they say anything other than, he is perfectly holy, wonderful, gracious, good, and amazing? I mean, listen to the way that the, the Old Testament authors speak about God's name. Psalm 8.1, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble, he sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earthquake the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalm 148, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted, his majesty above heaven and earth. You see how they speak about the name of God. Now compare that with how you speak about the name of God. Do they align? Because what, you, what the words you speak say something to everyone around you about the God you profess to serve. Are you taking his name in vain in this area?
May it never be that our words do anything other than uphold him as the great and glorious I am. May it never be that our words do anything other than revere him, treasure him, cherish him, and honor him. That's the first question. What are we doing with his name? The second question that we must address is, what are we doing in his name? The third commandment doesn't just speak to the words we use, but the lives we live as professors of Christ. For all who have taken the name of the Lord, who profess to be his children, who claim salvation by grace through faith in Christ, what are you doing in the name of the Lord your God? And the scriptures will speak to a couple of areas where this is important, specifically in the word. First, our word, not our words as in the first question, but our word, meaning our oaths and our vows. Leviticus 19.12 reads like this, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So in ancient Israel, to firm up a deal, an oath would be made between the two parties where they invoke the name of the Lord as security for that deal. And to betray an oath, to welch, or to not follow through on that oath sworn in the name of the Lord was to profane the name of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount noted the many ways that the Pharisees in his day were finding loopholes so that they could violate their oaths but not feel like they had profaned the name of the Lord in so doing. And so he said, uh, Jesus said to all who have taken the name of the Lord, to all who proclaim him as Lord, Matthew 5:37, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that, this comes from evil. Meaning, our whole lives, as those who bear the name of Jesus, are to be characterized by a blatant and unassailable honesty. If you make a promise to somebody, you keep it. If you make a financial deal and you don't follow through, if you don't pay your workers agreed-upon wages, if you don't pay your debts at the agreed-upon time, if you lie to people to collect money from them and then use those monies for things other than what you agreed upon, all of these are included in this text about vows and breaking, breaking them and profaning the name of the Lord. These are our violations of the third commandment, and these are sins for which the Lord will not hold you guiltless. Do not, in the area of your word, profane the name of the Lord or take his name in vain. A second area in which you should ask yourself, what am I doing in the name of the Lord, is with your life and your actions. How we live our lives is important. How we live as ambassadors of and to Christ in this world is important. The scriptures speak of our actions profaning the name of the Lord. For example, in Leviticus 18, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So sacrificing babies on the altar of Molech, who was a Canaanite idol, to whom people in, the, in, the Can, in Canaan offered their children in sacrifice, was a profaning of the name of the Lord. Again, King Agur in Proverbs 30 wrote this, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. 
So forgetting the Lord in your times of abundance and stealing in your times of poverty are profaning the name of the Lord. Amos writes this, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke punishment because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. So you see, for the people of God to be ambassadors of his name and to live reckless, rampant, unrepentant, sinful lives is a profaning of the name of the Lord. It is also a taking of the Lord's name in vain. And it violates the third commandment. It's for this reason that the Apostle Paul will write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 and say this, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Sexual immorality practiced by one who claims to be a believer. Greed, meaning an excessive desire to acquire more wealth. A reviler, meaning one who attacks and slanders the reputation of another in the world, or that is among the brothers. That word actually also carries with it the idea of being an abuser of the brother. That's how serious that sin is. A drunkard, meaning people who are habitually drinking alcohol to the excess so that they're constantly intoxicated. A swindler, one who is grasping at, stealing, and trying to take monies from another. All of these are for those who bear the name of a brother or in other words, bear the name of a Christian, or have taken on themselves the name of Christ, all of these are profaning the name of the Lord. And they are serious enough that the Apostle Paul calls for believers to separate themselves. Did you see it? Separate themselves from such a person if someone so blatantly violates the third commandment. So now each one of us must ask ourselves, I bear the name of Jesus. I claim to be one of his followers What does my life tell everyone around me about the Lord that I serve? If I'm a swindler or I'm greedy, what does that reveal to others? That the Lord is okay with such things? That the Lord permits greed? Or worse, that he is greedy himself? That's blasphemy. Or if I'm a reviler, slandering the name of my so-called brother in my anger, in my hostility, in my unforgiveness, what does that say to everyone around you about the Lord that you claim to serve? That he is unforgiving? That he is a reviler? That's blasphemy. If that is you, you are a blasphemer. You are taking the name of the Lord in vain, and you must repent, because any reviler, idolater, drunkard, swindler, sexually immoral man who claims to be a Christian is not a Christian. You have taken the name of the Lord in vain, must be disciplined by the church, and the church must separate from them to the point that you don't even share a table with them. Why? Because you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Jesus said it like this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Or in other words, why carry my name? Why bear my name? Why call out to me if you refuse to obey me and live for me? Why take the name of God in vain like that? So what are you doing with the name of God? What are you doing in the name of God? 
Are you profaning his name with irreverent words and or a disobedient life? Or are you hallowing his name by your words and your life? Now, in closing, if you are sensing a breach this morning, like you have breached this commandment, that you've broken it and you're asking yourself, okay, yeah, I've been here, now what? What do I do now? I feel the weight of this whole thing. What do I do now? What does this mean for me? Is there a way to fix this? Well, I have good news for you this morning because there is yet another truth about the name of the Lord that I've been saving for this last couple of minutes. Something the Apostle Paul wrote to the Roman believers, and it's this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Awesome! And how does one call on the name of the Lord? By recognizing your sin and turning from it in repentance and turning to Christ in forgiveness and calling out to Him, save me. I believe in you. I trust you. I put my faith in you this morning. And the promise of God to those who do this is, as the Apostle John wrote, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all your sin. It'll cleanse you from the violations of the third commandment that you have been prevalent in your life, if they have been. And even sins so grievous as the profaning of God's precious and holy name, the Apostle John also said, if we confess them, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if your sin weighs heavy on you this morning, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. If you are a bearer of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you feel like this is something the Lord's convicting you of, then confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin. For all of you who love and desire to serve the Lord this morning, for all who would keep themselves from violating the third commandment, for all who would use the name of the Lord in a hallowed manner and live for the Lord in a hallowed manner, let me close again with a word from the Apostle Paul. And here is his exhortation to every one of us. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord Jesus, or Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time that we have had. I thank you for the warning of your word. I thank you for the grace of your word. I thank you for your holiness. I thank you for your mercy. God, you are such an amazing God, and we are so amazed by your name as it is revealed to us in Scripture. Your name is a diamond that truly, as we turn it, we just see it shining ever more brightly, ever more magnificently, ever more wonderfully. And I pray that we as people who bear your name, who have taken your name, who have turned to Christ, that we would be faithful ambassadors and representatives of that name. Help us in the power of the Spirit to use your name in a reverent manner, to cherish your name with our words. And I pray also that you would help us in the power of the Holy Spirit to live as those obedient to you and committed to hallowing your name. Let everything about us, word and deed, speak of your glory Speak of your mercy. Speak of your grace and your truth and your love to everyone around us. Be honored by our lives. 
And may your name be honored in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's magnificent name. Amen.